If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Colossians chapter 1, Paul's epistle to the Colossians. If you don't have a Bible with you, you will find them in the lower shelf in the pew just in front of you. We continue in our series in the book of Colossians. We come this morning, God willing, to the end of chapter 1. We'll be considering verses 24 through 29, but I'll, I'll ask in order to get the proper context that we read verses 21 through 29. Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 21, and the verses to be considered this morning will be verses 24 through 29. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me." The last thing that the Lord did after He rose from the dead, before He ascended into heaven, the last thing that He did was to gather with His disciples on the mountain. And it was there that He spoke to them about what would be their mission, and not just their mission, but the mission of all true churches and all faithful disciples throughout time until the Lord Himself returns. Jesus said to His disciples assembled there, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And he said, O lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lord told His disciples, He gave them their marching orders, this commission, that apparently they were to go into the world and they were to preach the gospel unto the salvation of souls. He envisioned His disciples going forward, the gospel being preached, and lost sinners being won to Jesus Christ, being won to repentance and faith, and becoming disciples. Not just becoming converts, but becoming disciples, that is, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. Men and women giving their lives in repentance and faith to serve the living God and to follow His Son, the Lord Jesus. But see, the Great Commission involved more than that, more than just the mere making of disciples. Clearly, the Great Commission assumed a context in which those disciples would be baptized, and in which they would be trained and taught and equipped and built up in how to obey 
their Lord, their Master, their Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, the Great Commission assumed that churches would be started, uh, that, 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 that churches would be formed for these new converts where they could live among one another and practice and observe and obey all those commandments that the Lord Jesus had given for His disciples to follow. And there would be mechanisms for teaching. We know later, of course, that elders were given to the church to provide that kind of instruction in the Bible. These disciples would be baptized, signifying their entrance into the church community, and they were to live out the ethics of the kingdom of God, the commands of Christ, in the context of their shared life together. So the gospel was to go forward, churches were to be formed, and the truth about who Jesus is and what it is He taught His disciples to do would be taught throughout the generations of the church's existence in every place where disciples assembled to worship Him and to serve Him. Now, now, there is a notable absence of a particular person from that mountain before Jesus' ascension. If you read the rest of the New Testament, see most of the apostles were there on that mountain. But we know, of course, the apostle Paul, who wrote the epistle to the Colossians from prison in the early 60s, he wasn't there. In fact, he wasn't even a Christian at that time. Paul would not be converted until much later on, after the gospel began to go forward and after the apostles were proclaiming the Word, and men and women, Jews and Gentiles, were coming to faith in Jesus Christ and churches were being formed. We learn in Acts chapter 9 that Paul, whose name then was Saul, was persecuting the church. He was breathing out murders and threats against the church, and he was hauling off Christians to prison. He was taking them away bound, presumably to put them to death. And what happened is, while he was on the road to Damascus to carry on the work of persecuting the Lord's people and those Christians who were fulfilling the Great Commission, he has a living and vital encounter with the risen Christ. And Paul is spectacularly converted. He's made a disciple. And from then forward, he has given a ministry to fulfill this very commission that the Lord had given to those original disciples before he ascended into heaven. Paul is then included in that work of the Great Commission. And he's given a special ministry as an apostle, uh, as this special figure in redemptive history, a witness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's given a special stewardship, a special ministry, a special commission to preach the gospel, to reveal the truth to those who would be the Lord's people, and to form churches in every place. And indeed, that's what we see Paul doing. Here now in Colossians 1, Paul reflects on that ministry, the ministry that the Lord Jesus Himself had given to Paul, and he gives insight into what his ministry is and what it involves and what the purpose of his life was to serve in relationship to the church and to the gospel. So this morning, what I would like to do is to open up verses 24 through 29 about Paul's ministry, the ministry he was given, under three main headings. And then I want to consider some implications for us here at Emmanuel and our church life together that we can draw from Paul's reflection here on his own ministry in Galatians 1, 24 through 29. So three main headings, here are the headings, and we'll consider them one at a time. First, we'll see that Paul was given, number one, a ministry of suffering, toil, and struggle. A ministry of suffering, toil, and struggle. Secondly, a ministry of proclaiming Christ to the world. And thirdly, a ministry for the church. Ministry for the church. Consider with me the first heading. It was a ministry of suffering, toil, and struggle. 
These verses, this section in verses 24 through 29, is sandwiched between two statements from Paul on the great difficulties and challenges and trials that accompanied his ministry. So in verse 24, if you're looking at the text, he speaks of his suffering. And in verse 29, he speaks of toil and struggle. Paul's ministry required an unusual degree of suffering and toil and struggle. Okay, now to properly understand this text and what Paul is talking about in his sufferings and his toil and his struggle, it's important that I say this. I think these two things are true at once. Okay, so so number one, first of all, we know from Scripture that all Christians are called to suffer. All the Lord's people are called in some degree or another to suffer. That's the plain teaching of the New Testament, Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, a universal statement for all disciples. John 15, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master, the Lord said. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They persecuted the master. They're not going to treat the servant, the disciple, any better. Matthew 5, verse 12, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to His disciples, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Okay, true enough, all of the Lord's people must endure some degree of suffering as disciples of the Master. That's the first truth. I don't think that's at all what Paul is talking about here in our passage. So I don't think Paul is talking about the garden variety, run-of-the-mill, lot of suffering and toil and struggle that will be the lot of every true child of God. I think he's talking here about this second truth, and that is an unusual degree of suffering that he would suffer as an apostle. The Bible teaches that the apostles in general, Paul in particular, was called to a special ministry of suffering on Christ's account. And Paul refers to this many times in his writings. Even when Paul was first called into the ministry and first commissioned, the Lord said of Paul in Acts 9 verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I think referring there to the unusual ministry of suffering that Paul would have, he's going to suffer in a special degree, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Writing himself of the unique suffering endured by the apostles, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now listen to how Paul distinguishes the suffering that's his from the condition of these disciples in Corinth to whom he's writing. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul is saying we apostles in the role we're to play, the unique role we're to play in redemptive history, there is a unique burden of suffering that is placed on us that accompanies our ministry. And Paul, in a special way, I think, endured 
those sufferings. In 2 Corinthians 11, he documents many of these sufferings. If you're familiar with that passage, that's where he talks about being beaten with rods three times by the Jews and enduring the uh, 40 lashes less one and being shipwrecked and being in thirst and being in hunger and being naked and all those kinds of things he endured in his ministry. Here in our text in Colossians 1, Paul is speaking of the sufferings that belong to him in a special way as an apostle, laboring on behalf of the church and particularly on behalf of the Gentiles who would be saved through his ministry. So he says, verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm in prison in Rome and this part of the world, and I'm in prison for you. I'm suffering for your sake. He's speaking of his unique suffering as an apostle. Paul's ministry was uniquely linked to suffering for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the church. So he says, verse 24, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And then he says, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now what does Paul mean here? I am filling up through my suffering apparently some deficiency or inadequacy or lack in Christ's afflictions for your sake and for His body. What in the world is Paul talking about? And commentators and theologians have wrestled with this for, for centuries. Okay, so there's anywhere between a half dozen and a dozen interpretations on how to understand this particular verse. I'm not going to survey them all. What I'm going to do is tell you one thing I know this passage does not mean, and then I'm going to tell you what I think it means, though you don't have to agree with my particular interpretation. First of all, what it does not mean. I do not think Paul is suggesting, in fact, I know he is not suggesting that there was something deficient in terms of Christ's afflictions in terms of making atonement for our sins and securing our redemption. Paul is not saying, well, Christ's sufferings, His affliction on the cross was not good enough to secure salvation for His people and the forgiveness of their sins. He's not saying that. He, he knows, he believes, he teaches that the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to save any sinner from their sins. Nothing needs to be added to the work of redemption. Now, we don't know if Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but we know he was certainly familiar with the theology of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 9.26, it says this, but as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. But we don't even really need to look outside our own epistle. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul himself says in verse 13, God has made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, it's finished. There's nothing that needs to be added to that work to make it sufficient to assuage the wrath of God and to secure redemption and reconciliation for the Lord's people. So that is not what Paul is saying here by any means. But what is he saying? Here is my best effort. And again, you don't have to agree. Here's what I think he's saying. And the Bible speaks in a number of places about tribulations and sufferings to be endured by God's people in the last days, which biblically speaking are the days between Christ's first and second coming. 
So when we speak about the last days, or the Scripture speaks about the last days, it's not talking about a very small period of time at the very, very end of the years we're living in now. That's not how the Bible uses that phrase. The last days are ushered in by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're living in them right now. We are in the last days before the Son of God returns and the new heavens and the new earth are inaugurated. And in these last days, initiated by Christ's first coming, we're taught in a number of passages that these days will be marked by unusual suffering and tribulation for the Lord's people. The Scriptures teach that God will require some portion of suffering on behalf of the Lord's servants for the spread of the gospel and for the building up of the church. So one such text would be Matthew 24, verse 9, where Christ Himself says, "'Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake.'" But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see the idea here. He's going to leave. The last days are going to come. There's going to be suffering for the Lord's people. The gospel's going to go forward in the midst of that opposition and suffering, and then the end will come. These days, this period, will be marked by tribulations and suffering for the Lord's people. You have a passage like Revelation 6. But this is stated even more explicitly in terms of a certain quantity or filling up of suffering that's going to take place. Revelation 6 verse 9, we read this, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete or filled up, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I think what Paul is envisioning is the kind of suffering that the Lord has ordained will take place for His church between the two comings of the Lord Jesus and those sufferings, those tribulations are being filled up. They're completing a kind of amount of suffering that wasn't exhausted in the suffering of Christ. We're not talking about redemption now. We're talking about suffering that is going to be endured as the gospel goes forward and the church is built. And Paul, I think, is saying that he is filling up in his body that kind of suffering the Lord anticipated. And we, as the people of God, as the gospel goes forward and the church is built and people are martyred for spreading the faith and suffer and are persecuted for the cause of Christ, those sufferings are continuing to accumulate until, Revelation 6, 11, that number is filled. The quantity of suffering is complete. The prescribed, ordained sufferings and tribulations of the Lord's people are filled up. The apostles, in my view, served as the main forerunners in this arena of suffering for the sake of Christ's kingdom. You can imagine Paul sitting in prison in Rome and what he would have thought about this. He's thinking, this is part of the plan. This is what the Lord said would happen. In order to spread the gospel, to bring the news of Christ's atoning work to the world, we must suffer. Paul's thinking, I must suffer. 
This is part of the plan. I'm to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ's afflictions secured redemption, but they didn't bring the gospel to the whole world. That commission was given to me and my brothers and indeed to the whole church. I now, as a servant of Christ, am going throughout all the world proclaiming the gospel and enduring the suffering that the Master said His servants would suffer. And He knows all of this suffering is not in vain but is filling up what Christ requires for the gospel to go forward and the full number to be brought in. And so he says, verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's how I understand verse 24. Paul's ministry, first of all, was a ministry of suffering, toil, and struggle. Now, secondly, the second main heading. It was a ministry of proclaiming Christ to the world. Paul's ministry was a ministry of proclaiming Christ to the world. The sentences in this passage, verses 24 through 29, uh, are very hard to break down grammatically. Even in English you can see this. Paul speaks of this ministry that is his in a number of different ways, and it's hard to tell at least immediately how to put all the parts together. So if you're looking at the passage in verse 25, he speaks of being given a stewardship to make the Word of God fully known. He speaks in verse 26 of revealing a mystery to the saints. He speaks in verse 27 of the mystery being revealed to the Gentiles, and then he tells them the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How all these ideas fit together, the Word of God being made fully known, the mystery revealed to the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory, how precisely they fit together can be hard to figure out. So let me try to help us put it all together. I think were helped by the beginning of verse 28. There we read, Him, that is Christ, Him, we proclaim. So I think this can function essentially as a summary statement of what's gone before. This is the essence of Paul's ministry that he was given. The word he's to make known, the mystery he's to reveal, it is in essence to proclaim Christ his person and work, and all of the resulting implications to all the nations, to the Gentiles, to all the world. The commission he was given, the ministry he was given, was to proclaim Christ to the world. To put it another way, Paul says in Colossians 2.2 that he wants the Colossians to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's ministry, simply put, was a ministry of preaching the message concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ and its implications for the whole world, especially the Gentiles. So let me show you how I arrived there. Look at verse 25, if you would. Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So God entrusted a stewardship to Paul. Probably in the context of that road to Damascus experience and the days that followed in Acts chapter 9. Paul, excuse me, the Lord gave to Paul a stewardship. Now, what is the stewardship? Verse 25 goes on to tell us to make the Word of God fully known. So, Paul is entrusted with revelation. He's to reveal something, he's to make something fully known, fully disclosed. He's to share something with the people that he is to minister to. He's to make the Word of God fully known. And when we read that this revelation, this Word, 
is to be made fully known, I don't think he's speaking primarily of the quantity of people who are to know about this. So I don't think he's saying, well, it's known by this group of people, and now it needs to be made known to them, and then to them, and to them, although certainly true, the gospel should be published in every place. But when Paul speaks of the word being made fully known, I think he's actually talking about something else. He's saying that there was something mysterious, something that was unknown to people, something that was maybe in seed form in the Old Testament Scriptures that is now being fully revealed through the person of Jesus Christ and through His apostles. The word that's being made fully known refers to a fuller disclosure of the truth, something that we did not understand so clearly before. Now, through Paul's ministry and the ministry of the apostles and through the New Testament Scriptures, we're coming to understand it with greater clarity. This mystery is being revealed. This is what Paul says in verse 26. He equates making the Word of God fully known to revealing the mystery hidden for ages and generations. You see that in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations. I believe he's referring to the ages and generations before Christ came. He recognizes my role as an apostle is to reveal this mystery now. Now, Paul uses the word mystery 20 times in his letters. Half of them occur in the epistles to the Ephesians and to the Colossians. He speaks of a mystery being revealed. Now, that word, mysterion in Greek, has a very specialized meaning. It does not mean the kind of meaning we would often employ when we use the word mystery. So I was talking to a brother who came by to see me in my study this week. We were talking about the Trinity. He was asking questions about the Trinity, and we both reflected together. There are elements of that doctrine that are what? Mysterious. So, so there's aspects of that doctrine that, that contain an element of mystery. Now, what do I mean when I say that? There's aspects to it that we can't quite reconcile, and there's pieces to that doctrine that are just a little bit out of our reach. And our ability to totally comprehend it, there's just a mystery element to it. You have the sense there's a bit of a veil over this, that yes, there's parts of this we can grasp, and yet there's pieces to it that are just beyond our ability to understand. It's, it's a mysterious doctrine. Okay, that's not the way Paul uses this word. When Paul speaks of a mystery being revealed, he's referring to something, a truth, or a body of truths, that in a previous age was not understood or comprehended, that now in the person of Christ and through His coming into the world and His death and resurrection is now perfectly understood and comprehended. So the mystery is not to remain a mystery. Rather, He's going to tell us exactly what the mystery is. He's going to reveal to us the mystery so that there's perfect clarity on what the truth is through the apostles' ministry. And so we read verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is the mystery? He says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or the way he'll put it in Colossians 2.2, he'll talk about the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ It's not like we're supposed to scratch our heads. Now, what does mystery mean? No, the mystery is revealed. The mystery is that Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. 
And that in his name, the gospel was to go forward to all the nations, even among the Gentiles, and that salvation would be preached in Jesus' name, the repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, that that would go forth into the world, and that even the Gentiles will be included and brought in through the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He comes out and tells us exactly what the mystery is. It is magnificent in every way as it's characterized by great glory. It will involve the inclusion of the Gentiles even in the redemptive purposes of God. God is going to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And this mystery is said to be centered on Christ. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, the word that He's making fully known the mystery that He is revealing, it is the person and work of Jesus Christ and its implications for every man, woman, boy, and girl under heaven, Jew or Gentile, that there is salvation only in Him. That is the ministry given to Paul. And so he summarizes Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me." Paul's ministry, first was a ministry of suffering, toil, and struggle. Secondly, it was a ministry of proclaiming Christ to the world. Now thirdly, observe, it was a ministry for the church. It was a ministry for the church. Why all the suffering and the toil and the struggle? Why was Paul the apostle called as this key redemptive historical figure and entrusted with this glorious stewardship of proclaiming Christ? We have our answer in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. I'm out here for you. I'm in prison for you. I was given this ministry of suffering and toil and struggle, this ministry of making the Word of God fully known and revealing the mystery hidden for ages, proclaiming Christ to all the Gentiles. I was given this ministry for the sake of Christ's body, for the sake of the church. Now just stop for a minute and appreciate who's writing this. Okay, be- before Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9, what's he doing? Verse 1, we read that in those days he was breathing out threats and murders against the church. That, that's, that's Saul before he's converted. He's on his way to persecute the body of Christ. And when Jesus strikes him off his horse and strikes him blind, what does he say to Saul? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Like my body, my people, why are you inflicting suffering on them? But see, the transformation that took place in Saul was such that now the roles are reversed. And here he is as a converted man, born again by the Spirit of God. And what he's doing is he's enduring suffering in his own body now for the sake of the Lord's body, the church. I mean, is that amazing grace or what? 
The man who was a persecutor of Christ's body is now enduring the same kind of suffering that he used to inflict on the Lord's little lambs, on the Lord Himself, through their union with Him. He's now enduring that kind of suffering for the sake of the Lord's body, the church. It is for them that He was given this stewardship. For them, He was given this call. He is in this for the church. God saved him and made him an apostle for the saints, for the church, for local churches like the church in Colossae and for our church in Winston-Salem. Paul called him to the ministry to endure suffering for the sake of Christ's body, the church. So total was the transformation that overcame Paul that he went from hating Christ's body and inflicting suffering and severe harm upon Christ's body to He Himself enduring that suffering Himself. Paul exists. He is given his commission. He wakes up in the morning. He takes up his pen. He lives and breathes for the church. That is why God has called him into this ministry. He labored for the church. He suffered for the church. He toiled and struggled for the church. He was in prison for the church. He tells us, in 2 Corinthians 11, that he had anxiety for all the churches. He says, I was beaten with rods. I endured 39 lashes at the hands of the Jews on five separate occasions. He says he was shipwrecked three times. He was tortured in hunger and thirst, sleepless nights adrift at sea, hunted by his own countrymen. All these sufferings, he says, are for your sake. It is for the sake of Christ's bride, the church, that Paul is laying down his life, that Paul is ministering. He is in this for them. So I want to say that in Paul's ministry, we see something of how precious the church is to Jesus Christ, of how dear the Lord's flock is to him, that he would call Paul, this apostle, the revealer of this great mystery, to this office to serve the church. Do you know that song, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord? We sing it not often, maybe now and again. It's an old hymn, wonderful hymn about the church. I could imagine Paul, we know he liked to sing hymns in prison. That was something he really enjoyed, and we have records of him doing that very thing. I can imagine him, I know this song wasn't around then, but I could imagine him singing these lines from that song and meaning these words perhaps as no one else ever has. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with His own precious blood. I love the church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Why are you doing this, Paul? What are you living for? Why are you willing to go to prison and endure all these hardships? He says, I live, I suffer, and I die to proclaim Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I'm in this for them. 
I'm in this for Christ's body, the church. For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. For her, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Paul is not in this for his own self-fulfillment, not for money or the progress of his own agenda. He's not trying to start some parachurch movement or political party. Paul is in this for the church, and it should be noted, not just for decisions or converts or greater attendance or a bigger church budget. Paul is in this for the church and for presenting each of her members mature in Christ. He's in this for their growth, for their sanctification, for their progress in the faith, for their maturation. Here's this church in Colossae, and Paul says, I suffer for you, I labor and toil for you, that you might be presented mature in Christ. That's what I want. I want your maturity, your growth. I want you to be more and more like Christ. That's why I'm out here. That's why I suffer, for your sake, that on the last day when I stand before Christ, there might be a harvest of souls mature in the Lord Jesus. All right, now in closing, it's all about Paul and his ministry. He had a ministry of suffering, toil, and struggle. He had a ministry of proclaiming Christ to the world. It was a ministry for the church. What does this have to do with us? What implications can we draw for our church body, our church family here at Emmanuel? There are three implications, three things in light of this passage that must become, if they are not already, core values for our fellowship here at Emmanuel Church. Three core values I want us to gather from this passage. Number one, the centrality of Christ in the biblical message. The centrality of Christ in the biblical message. If what we have seen so far in Colossians is true, if Christ is preeminent above all things, if He is the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead, the beginning and the end, He must be at the center of everything. He is the center of the Scriptures. He's the locus of the biblical witness. Everything in the Bible and in the Christian message revolves around Him. Apart from Christ, brothers and sisters, we have no message to proclaim. Him we proclaim. He is the Word of God fully made known. He is the mystery revealed. Christ we proclaim. The message of the apostles and of the church is not about an earthly political agenda, it's not about a program for social reform. It is not an individual self-help guide. We're not here primarily for community enrichment. Our only message, like the one thing we have to offer to the world, is a message about the Son of God who came into the world and who died for the sins of His people and has made a way of access to God by His blood so that anyone can be saved who trusts in Him. You take away that plank from the church, that feature of the message, and I'm telling you, we have nothing to offer. We have nothing to offer if we don't have Christ to offer to the world. I don't care what else you think the church has to contribute in terms of programs or community enrichment. Take away the message about Christ and we've got nothing. We might as well pack it all up 
and go home. Any other secondary benefits you believe the church has to offer are just drivel compared to the surpassing excellencies of Christ and proclaiming His grace and His salvation for needy sinners. Our message to Winston-Salem and to the nations of the world is that through Christ, the Son of God, in His death, you can be saved. Christ must be at the center of everything we preach and teach, of everything we do, of everything that we are. All of our money, all of our services, all of our gatherings, all our events, all of our programs, they're just nothing if Christ is not at the center of this church, central to who we are. I hope this is true. Whatever else is true of this ministry, whatever draws you to our gatherings, whatever has prompted you to become a member of this church, those who are the members, I hope it is because here you find the person of Jesus Christ. Because here He is preached. Here He's the center of our worship and our lives. Him we proclaim. And we want to be presented mature in Him. Listen, missional drift is a real thing. Churches can get caught up in all kinds of nonsense. But for the true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, His person and work must be our north star. It must be our true north, the person of Christ, fully taught and expounded. I'm not talking about just preaching the good news of the gospel. I'm talking about like Great Commission stuff, teaching all that Jesus commanded expounding who He is in His love and in His mercy and in His compassion for sinners, expounding His law and His precepts, expounding His rule over the church and His will for local congregations. Jesus Christ must be at the center of the biblical message that we preach. We learn that, we can see that in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. That's the first core value. Secondly, we see in this passage the primacy of the church in the plan of God. The primacy of the church in the plan of God. We must treasure the centrality of Christ in the biblical message. Secondly, the primacy of the church in the plan of God. Now, friends, I know in this life it could appear as though all sorts of things matter and matter imminently and matter urgently. Many would tell us that the most important things happening in the world are happening in the political arena or events happening on a global stage. It may seem like what happens on Wall Street is important or what is going on in elite universities like Harvard or Yale or perhaps what takes place in the scientific community and whatever the outcome will be of this coronavirus pandemic. But what matters to God in the Bible preeminently, is the church. God's activity and His work and His promises and His servants like Paul are given for the church. Simply put, according to the Bible, the church is where it's at. Spurgeon said, the rest of the world is just scaffolding. The church is the true building. The church is the thing that Christ Himself is building. He says, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Jesus died for the church. His servants like Paul suffered and toiled and struggled for the church. God is perfecting His church. 
I don't care what else you think matters in the world. It takes a backseat to the church. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not invested in the companies that you work for. He's invested in the church. He's not invested in your children's school or co-op. He's not invested in your little agenda for your life. He's invested in the church's agenda. He's not made such glorious promises to anyone else, to any other institution. Christ isn't dating other girls. He's preparing His bride, the church. To her and her alone, He is singularly devoted. And it is the church and the church itself that He is building. This is why, brothers and sisters, we speak so much, we talked about this in the equip class this morning, so much about prizing the local church. Because the local church is, after all, the tangible, visible, local expression of the church for which Christ shed His blood and for whom His preeminent servants like Paul suffered and toiled. In the plan of God and in His purposes, the church takes the place of primacy. You understand this, right? All the other institutions and agencies and entities are nothing compared to the church. Look, I I don't want to persuade anyone not to be patriotic. But you know, long after the United States is a thing of the past and a mere footnote in human history, there will be the church. And I don't want to persuade anybody not to love their families, but you know long after your family name has died out and you have returned to dust, there will be the church shining in splendor for 10,000 years upon 10,000 years. The church will remain. Your school or your university or the company you're working for, your 401k or all your family gatherings or whatever else might seem so important to you in this moment, It's all going to be a distant thing of the past, but the church will endure and persevere and continue forever because Christ is building His church. The final scene in Revelation is the church coming out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. What things do you think will matter to you on that great day? For her, my tears shall fall. For her, for the Lord's bride, my prayers will ascend. For her, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. So I'll just ask you, are you investing your life and giving yourself to serve that one institution, that one agency, that one entity that will be here a million years from now? Or do we allow our lives to be consumed by everything else that is fleeting and passing away? I want to lean in here for, for the young people here, like high school students or college students, or those who are approaching those years. Everything like in your family life and in American culture conspires to tell you that you are the center of the universe, and the most important thing is what you do for the next four years of your life. What does everybody ask you when you're 18 years old? Hey, what are you going to do after school? Where, where are you going to college? Have you picked a major yet? You dating anybody? You can just think, what, what, what I do with these extra like this is all that matters. I'm telling you, the church matters more than whatever the next four years will hold for you. 
The church matters a lot more than whatever university you choose to go to or job you choose to take. I plead with you, young people, make the church the priority of your life and the backbone of your walk with Jesus. The church that you will be a part of for the next four years is far more important than the university and the college that you decide. You young parents, you may think the most important thing is getting established in your careers and setting up your kids for success. I guarantee you that is not the most important thing in the world. You're not going to be doing the job that you're doing a thousand years from now. But hopefully, by God's grace, you will be in the new heavens and the new earth, worshiping the Lamb forever and ever with your brothers and sisters. Are you living now in a way that reflects that my treasure is in heaven? I'm not saying don't think about what job you have. I'm not saying don't go to college. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm talking about priorities and how you live your life and what matters in the world. You folks on the cusp of retirement, or maybe you're well into retirement, and every day you check your Fidelity account, or your Edward Jones, or your Charles Schwab, and do I have everything set up for all the kids and all the grandkids? And it could seem like the most important thing in the world that you get all of that right. I'm, tell I'm just telling you it's not. Like Part of my job as your pastor is to remind you of the things that matter. And I'm telling you, as important as it may seem to make sure every last financial detail is looked after for your kids, what is far more important is your love and care for the people of God, your investment in the bride of Christ and in His church and in His people who will endure as long as the Son endures. A third and final priority, core value that we have from this passage, thirdly and finally, we must prize the centrality of Christ in the biblical message, the primacy of the church and the plan of God. Thirdly and finally, the priority of maturity in the Christian life. The priority of maturity in the Christian life. Did you catch that in verse 28? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature. In Christ. For this, presenting Christians mature, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What was the goal of Paul's ministry? Like, what was, what was the biggest thing on the scorecard for him? What was a job well done for Paul? He tells us Colossians 1, verse 28, it was to present saints mature or perfect or complete in Christ. I imagine the Apostle Paul serving the churches. And what's he doing? He's evangelizing lost people, right? Goes into a new community, evangelizes the lost, a church is established. He sees people one to Christ. But you know this, right? For Paul, at that point, the work was just beginning. So it is not ultimately the mission of the church to make converts only. Rather, the church is to make lifelong disciples that observe all that Jesus commanded. Your maturity, brother, sister, your growth in the faith is part of the Great Commission. It is Great Commission work in your Christian life to put your sin to death and to put on Christ. It's Great Commission work to learn how to love your spouse better. It's Great Commission work to learn how to follow Jesus more faithfully, to keep His precepts more 
perfectly. Paul wants to present every member mature in Christ, which means Christian growth and maturation is part of the mission. He wanted all believers to grow and mature, to become stable and healthy and holy and godly. I'll just tell you an important biblical insight that we see again and again in the Scriptures. The Lord apparently, according to the Bible, is not content that we simply become converted. I think if that's all He was after, He'd just take us, right? Upon being converted, He'd just take us. But apparently there's a purpose beyond our conversion upon our believing of the gospel at first. He doesn't simply want to create a community or a kingdom full of immature and unstable and selfish and wimpy Christians. He wants to create a people who grow and who become mature and who become strong and faithful and steadfast and holy and Christ-like. One of the things I've appreciated in preaching expositional sermons over the last five years is how often this theme comes up. Again and again, read the letters of the apostles. Consider the words of the Lord Jesus, how much attention is given to the ongoing growth and maturation of the people of God. This is why Paul toiled and struggled, that we would grow and that we would be mature in the faith. Now, here's one of the important reasons we need to see this, and this is why I say this needs to be one of our core values as a church. There is a whole evangelical subculture that seems to glory in messiness and immaturity and the kind of spiritual childishness that is just wrong, that is not the Lord's will for our lives. People that think, well, I'm just a mess, and I'm just really immature, and that's, you know, that's, that's how it is. You, you may say, Alex, doesn't the Bible teach that, that, that we're to be like little children, we're to come to Jesus like little children, and the kingdom of God is made up of little children? That's absolutely true. If you don't become like one of the least of these, like one of these little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But that speaks of our humility before God. The Bible commends childlike faith. We never graduate from childlike faith. It never commends childishness in the faith. We don't glory in immaturity. We don't glory in messiness. We recognize Christ's will for my life is that I would grow and that I would be strong and that I would become stable and steadfast and mature. The Lord's will is that I would understand the things that Jesus has taught And that by His grace and through its Spirit's help, I would grow as a Christian and become more stable and steadfast and strong and mature in the faith. You see, this view, so unappreciated by so many professing Christians in our day, you can see how it affects our church life. We're not just trying to reach as many people as possible and to grow the attendance as big as we can. We want to reach the more. We want to win people for Christ's sake, but it matters what happens to them after they are one to Christ. We want each one presented mature in the Lord. We want each one stable and steadfast and strong. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter so that Christians would grow in godliness and grow in maturity and grow in righteousness that they might better put off their sins and put on Christ that everyone might be presented mature and whole and perfect in Christ. Friends, these should be priorities. 
biblical priorities that were present in the ministry of the Apostle Paul and that should guide us in our ministry as a church. The centrality of Christ in the biblical message, the primacy of the church in the plan of God, and the priority of maturity in the Christian life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in your providence and in your great mercy, you have called us to live in this age when the mystery has been revealed, that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come into the world, and that he has made a way of salvation for any who would come to him in repentance and faith. We thank you. It could seem so commonplace. We know the gospel. We hear it preached. We sing it. We know it. But we thank you that the gospel has come to us and that this commission to proclaim Christ is ours also. That you call each one of us to make him known in this world. You call us as a local church to do this in our own community. We pray that throughout the generations and the years of this church's life that we would never depart from Christ. That we would never be removed from the centrality of the person and work of Jesus Christ in our faith and in our message. We pray, Father, that we would appreciate more and more the primacy of the church and the plan of God, that we would come to see the activity of this local church and every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ as indeed the most important thing in the universe. We know, we believe, we thank you that you are building your church and that your promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. We pray that you would give to all of us zeal for your bride, zeal for your body, a love for your kingdom to serve you in the context of your church that you're building. And we pray as it was the prize of the Apostle Paul, we pray that we too would treasure maturity in Christ. As he says elsewhere, the stature of full manhood, stability and steadfastness and strength in Christ, help us to grow, help us to be more like him, help us to put to death our sins, Help us to become more holy and more like our Lord. Thank you for the hope that we all have, the sure hope that we will be presented mature in Christ on that last day. Please, Lord, in these days now, help us to live for the things that matter, to carry on our lives in ways that would not make us ashamed to stand before you even now. May we live in holiness and godliness, for we will live in such throughout all of our days in the new heavens and new earth. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.